Hello, and welcome to the third episode in our Brexit Bonfire podcast series, in which we consider matters connected to the EU law revocation and reform bill, which we're referring to as the Brexit Freedom Bill. My name is Simon Fennell, and I'm a partner in the employment team here at Shoesmiths. I'm joined by Amy Leach, a senior associate also in the employment team, and today we're going to discuss some of the employment aspects of the Brexit Freedom Bill. Amy, do you want to give us a little bit more insight into the context of our discussion today? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Um, So as some of our listeners will probably be aware, the Brexit Freedom Bill um, was introduced by the government late last year in September. Um, And the government kind of states that the purpose of it is for the bill to remove uh, years of burdensome EU regulation in favour of a more agile, homegrown regulatory approach that basically benefits people and businesses across the UK. If the bill is passed in its original form, um, all law, which would include employment laws that we're going to talk about today, um, that have been derived from the UK's membership of the EU will cease, basically, to have legal effect on the 31st of December uh, this year. So it's ba- this date, this 31st of December 2023, is known as the sunset date. And the only way to avoid a law um, essentially sailing off into the sunset is for it to be reviewed and restated in new UK legislation. Um, There's also a provision that a minister can delay the sunset uh, date for specific pieces of EU law, but only until the 23rd of June 2026. So there is a long stop date on that. And actually, scarily enough, that date will be the 10th anniversary of the Brexit referendum as well. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So from an employment law uh, perspective, there are definitely, um, I'd say, EU laws that we would welcome probably seeing the back of. um, But there probably are some as well that if they did disappear, they could leave employers and or employees unprotected um, if the legislation is not restated in UK law. And I think as well, more importantly, and obviously this will be a feature today in our our episode, I think it can present um, that golden opportunity to reshape some of the burdensome areas of employment law. So, Simon, I don't know if you want to start us off with maybe an area of employment law um, that employers may appreciate uh, seeing disappear. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Well, the um, the first one that we're going to um, talk about is the Transfer of Undertaking Protection of Employment Regulations 2006, which uh, lots of people will know as as Chupi. It's an area of law that often gives people um, some headaches and is recognised as being relatively complicated. Um, the original version of TUPI was implemented in the UK right back in 1981 off the back of um, EC Council directives, which came known, thankfully, because it's got a hugely long-winded title, but it came known as the Acquired Rights Directive. Um, the purpose of TUPI is to um, safeguard the employment of employees in circumstances where business or part of the business within which they worked um, was sold or transferred to another organisation. The broad idea is that employment should follow the work. So GP was updated after quite a significant review in 2006. Uh, and in the UK, we introduced a concept um, which is unique to us, which is called the service provision change. Now, given that that is a unique provision to um, law in the UK and isn't therefore derived from the EU, technically that part of GP would survive the sunset provision and would remain a standalone piece of law even if the rest of Chupi were allowed to burn on the bonfire, so to speak. Um, Chupi in its current form protects employees, but does apply quite a number of burdens on employers. So off the back of that, if uh, Chupi was removed by the bill, 
on the face of it, it looks like that it would seem helpful to employers. But as you say, employees may argue uh, differently. Given the opportunity that the bill poses, um, I suppose if cheapy could be changed, what would you suggest? I don't think it's a piece of law that employers would necessarily want to lose uh, as such. There was a, another review in 2014 um, which after a long period of consultation, the UK government not only um, decided to maintain the service provision change, uh, but you know reinforce the value the value of that. So it's a piece of law that gives employers some continuity. And if you imagine that um, you know where there is a, a contractual change which sees um, a workforce moving from one to the other, it's often quite useful to have that continuity. So to throw it all away would be would be quite difficult and certainly would be damaging to to employees. But from an employer perspective, one of the big headaches that's connected to Chupi is that you end up with a workforce where you have different sets of terms and conditions um, for employees who are working alongside each other. And Chupi prohibits any variation to the terms and conditions of employment where the reason or the principal reason for that variation is the Chupi transfer. So what I mean by that is that you can't simply harmonise terms and conditions within a workforce so that everybody's working on the same terms and conditions. Um, and any attempt to change those terms and conditions, which is because of the transfer or connected to the transfer, will be deemed to be void and unenforceable. And the problem is that there's no long stop date. So even if a variation happens, say five or five or more years, I just picked five years as a random, but it could be any number of years after the Tubi transfer has taken place. If the variation is still deemed to be connected to that transfer, the variation will be void. So it provides a significant and ongoing risk to employers who, who would really like to have um, a simplified employment model. One exception is where the employer can show that the sole or principal reason for the variation is an ETO, which is an economic, technical or organisational reason entailing changes in the workforce. But a real problem there is that it's often tricky for an employer to be able to successfully argue their case for um, an ETO. And the bill, therefore, gives us this opportunity to try and make this whole position easier on employers. Um, and one of the ways that they could do that would be to um, you know, be really radical and allow harmonisation um, from day one to terms and conditions which are, let's say, the best of the package that, that might be available. So if the transferring staff have got terms and conditions that are less favourable than staff who are already within the business, for example, allow harmonisation to move to those terms or or a package of terms that are um, the best of, of both worlds, perhaps. Um, another option might be to uh, put a long stop date in so that once you've passed that date, um, you can apply variations and you're free from the encumbrance of um, of the Tupi transfer. Um, whatever we have, it would be useful to have a situation where at least the parties can agree changes because we're in a strange situation at the moment that even potentially where there is agreement reached between the employer and the employee, if the employee subsequently changes their mind, if it's connected to the transfer, it's void whether they've agreed it or not. So there are some opportunities that uh, that really could make things a lot more straightforward. Amy, would you change anything about GP? That's great. Thanks, Simon. And yeah, I think another... Um area of cheapy which employers probably find quite frustrating 
is the consultation obligation. So TUPE imposes an obligation on employers to inform and consult representatives. Um, and in the absence of a recognised trade union or an existing and authorised um, group that already exists um, among the employees, representatives have to be elected as part of the process by their peers um, before consultation can commence. There, There is an exception where there's sort of less than 10 10 employees um, but majority of employers will likely fall into the the first camp where they do have to elect or give the opportunity to the employees to elect um, representatives and I know for some organizations this can be a real pain especially if their employees are not necessarily maybe going to understand the GP process or um, necessarily want to engage with it or um, sort of put themselves forward and Getting that consultation process wrong can have significant consequences. So employees can claim up to 13 weeks pay per affected employees, um, which can be quite a lot if you've got a large workforce that are affected by this. And again, it's worth noting that a single claim by an affected employee could result in dozens or even hundreds of affected employees benefiting from that judgment. Um so it does that, I think, would probably be an area that employers would go, that'd be great if that obligation can be removed. Um, there are a number of questions which, again, are not easily determined by Tupi currently. So in relation to consultation, it's well, what should employers really be consulting about? To how long should consultation last for? There's no kind of prescribed timescales at the moment. Um, who is an effective employee? Because whilst it can be... Um, the obvious employees, those that are transferring, what about employees who are not transferring but remaining with the transferor or are actually um, employees of the transferee, so the receiving party, are they going to be affected by the transfer? Um, so I suppose some options to improve this uh, obligation and to make it easier for employers um, would be to apply the same uh, collective consultation provisions that we have with redundancies to GP. So, for example, if there are fewer than 20 employees proposed to transfer, then um, you could say that no consultation obligations apply. So have a, have a benchmark. Um, I suppose another option would be to provide uh, minimum timescales for any consultation process to take place, because I think that's a big one at the moment in that employers, we often get clients say to us, well, how long does my process need to be? And it's like, well, how long's a piece of string? Um, and it yep. can be quite tricky. So some guidance, I think, in that area would be very welcomed. Um, and I suppose also limit consultation obligations, again, to those who are in scope to be transferred to avoid the uncertainty of actually who is an affected employee. So I think there's quite a lot which could be reformed in that, that area. Um, Simon, I suppose moving away from cheapy for the moment are there any other pieces of employment law that you think we could improve as a result of the bill yeah i think there are i mean one of the the one of the obvious ones amy is um the working time regulations we've had a number of conflicting pieces of case law over the, the last few years that have really uh, impacted upon working time and, and all various implement uh, elements of the working time regulations. so i think there's some real scope here um i mean one of the things that people don't necessarily understand is that the working time regulations was a piece of health and safety legislation effectively when it came in um, and consequently for one of the biggest pieces um, of its uh, of its clout if you like the 48 hour maximum working week that's only enforceable through the health and safety executive it's not a right that an employee necessarily has to do something about off their own back within say the employment tribunals and 
we also had the opportunity using the opt-out um, to mean that that piece of the legislation doesn't apply anyway. And so many employers um, ask employees to do that. And many employees are very happy to do that because they want to work overtime, et cetera, which is often where they you know, top up their, their, their wages. Um, it's become very much a, a damp squibber and it's very few um, prosecutions have, have actually taken place in, re- in respect of the 48-hour week. So I think that's something that um, that could be looked at um, potentially even removing it altogether, given that it's um, it's so you know it's so infrequently um, enforced, uh, or perhaps giving rights to the individual to enforce that within the the employment tribunal, um, and looking at the rules in respect of that. Obviously, that might not be terribly um, popular with with employers, um, but nevertheless, it, it would at least give. Um, power back to um, back to the employee and mean that it's actually a sensible and and um, an enforceable piece of, of legislation. Um, we could also move it, given it is a safety um, element. Maybe move it and apply only to certain sectors where um, health and safety is of um, more significance, um, and and where overworking and overtime really would have consequences. Uh, in respect of their hours of work, so I think there are some real, you know, real areas just in relation to the working time regulations and the forty-eight hour week that um, that we could see other bits. Um, but one of the other bits, obviously, has been annual leave and pay. So, you know, what do you think about that, Amy? Yeah, so annual leave and, and holiday—that's always um, an interesting topic, uh, mm. especially for our clients. It can be quite complicated, actually. Um, so I suppose, yeah, as you say, alongside the maximum working week, um, most people will recognise that the working time regulations introduced the right to a minimum amount of paid annual leave. Um, so originally 20 days, which was under the directive, um, but latterly 28 days, which is UK only under the working time regulations. Um, and I suppose at this point, it's quite it's probably worth us noting that given the UK has extended the limit of statutory annual leave in the UK, I think it's probably really unlikely that this right will be withdrawn um, as part of the sunset provision. So hopefully nobody's panicking that they're going to lose their uh, their holiday. No, I think um, right. <laughs> but I think, yeah, determining, I think, annual leave entitlement um, for employees is relatively straightforward. But the same cannot be said for when we get the holiday pay. And this is the one that our clients and um, can sometimes find quite tricky, especially if employees um, have additional payments alongside their normal salary or hourly rate. So the working time regulation states that an employee should receive a week's pay for every week of annual leave taken, which in theory sounds very simple um, and straightforward. However, there's been so much case law on this over the sort of last few years and, and even before that, which has held that normal pay during holiday will need to take into account payments like commission um, in and in particular circumstances paid overtime as well. And this area is a really sort of large area of concern for employers. Um, the courts have identified the principle and the fact that it needs to include these things, but has to an extent refused to confirm exactly what employers need to do to comply um, and have also refused to clarify what generates a pattern of work which would trigger these payments above basic salary during periods of holiday. Um, so some clarity in this area would be uh, very helpful. So some, I suppose, potential amendments could be um, calculating the average day's pay for an employee through the use of all payments made to them for the previous holiday year 
um, and then you can ensure that that rate is applied as a minimum to each day of annual leave taken in the subsequent holiday year so have a bit more of a calculation mechanism there um as with that option you could have it but also say that actually it works instead on a 12-month rolling basis uh, immediately preceding the date of the leave um, you could also look at whether maybe only overtime, which generates an additional X percentage of the employee's salary in the previous pay period, should be taken into account for holiday pay. So put kind of a benchmark in. Um, and then again, you can adopt a method such as the other two we've just said for the calculation. Um, or they could maybe revert back to the original position and only apply basic pay to annual leave, although I'm not sure how popular that one would be maybe with, with employees. Um, better for employers, but yeah, maybe not for employees. Um, but yeah, I suppose kind of wrapping up the work and time regulations. Um, another regulation is the agency worker regulations. Is there anything there we could change, Simon? Uh, I think this one's relatively simple. Um <laughs> The UK has never liked the agency worker regulations. Um, the UK government implemented the uh, the AWR on about the last very last day available for implementation by the EU. Um, so it's never been very popular. The we understand that the the general um, working population who who work, you know, in in roles that are affected by the um, the AWR like to do that they'd like the flexibility they want to continue working in that way um and considering that we've got a a workforce now where lot that you know there's very high employment a very low unemployment the fact that we still have lots of people working in this part of the uh, uh, part of the economy suggests that 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 might be right um and in a post-brexit world where we've got you know levels of employment higher than ever before do we really need the the regulations at all um the regulations are confusing You've got day one rights. You've got week 12 rights. Um, there's lots of caveats, lots of ambiguities. And I think actually the single proposal for the for, for the UK in this one is just let it burn. Um, <laughs> let it disappear altogether. And I think employers would be delighted um, with that one. Um, I think that probably takes us to the end of uh, the time that we've got available um, today. There's lots of other legislation that, um, that we could have talked about. And there's lots of other bits that really need some clarity. There's about 380 items um, in with the, fall within the ambit of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy alone. Um, and we've just you know, scraped the surface on some of the ones that, um, that potentially impact on more people than others. So that's where we're going to leave it. Thanks very much for listening today. Thank you very much, Amy, for, for joining me. Um, I'm sure the next episode will be along soon. So stay tuned for that. But for the meantime, thank you and goodbye. Thanks, Simon. Thank you.